Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Alan Flanagan, otherwise known as the Nutritional Advocate. Alan has a pretty interesting background, having a degree in history and English, and later qualifying and working as a lawyer in Dublin. Um, his passion for nutrition led him to completing a master's in nutritional medicine at the University of Surrey, where he's now doing his PhD research in the field of chrononutrition. Um, this was a pretty fantastic chat and quite different from my usual podcast because we spoke very little about nutrition, but instead we spoke a lot about the state of nutrition science and the dissemination of that science as it currently stands. Um, if you're a nutrition re- researcher, uh, a dietitian, a doctor with a passion for lifestyle medicine, a personal trainer or nutrition coach, I think you'll really gain a lot from the conversation we have. Um, and if you do enjoy it, uh, I'd love it if you left a review and a rating on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Um, it really, really helps to get the podcast out to more people. Um, also, feel free to send me a message and let me know what you think, um, as I'm always happy to hear feedback on the podcast. Uh, so without any further delay, here's my conversation with Alan Flanagan. Let's talk science. Alan, let's go. Just uh, to get us started, um, just yeah. for anybody who might not be familiar with who you are, um, would you mind uh, giving a little bit of an introduction as to kind of uh, as to your background um, and what you do now, please? Yeah, so my background is a bizarre trail um, in terms of where I'm at now. I did my undergrad in UCD in history and English. Um, I did law then in the King's Inns afterwards. Got called to the bar. In October 2009, um, started practicing, well, obviously did my deviling for, for a couple of years and started practicing. And then um, in the background was this kind of gnawing interest in nutrition. Um, and I was, I used to describe as a PubMed warrior, you know, so trying to read scientific literature, not really um, knowing what I'm doing, you know, which is why I think I'm quite, I take such a dim view of fucking, you know, twats now when I can clearly see where they're at and I'm just like listen I know where you're at in this Dunning-Kruger chart and you just need to start sliding towards the other end of the scale um so I started I started the MSc um uh, at the University of Surrey Surrey have two MSc programs one thankfully is modular and I did that and that just everything accelerated once I'd started the MSc um, you know, and, and it just was going down more of a rabbit hole. And then I got offered the PhD that I'm on and I jumped into it full time. So there we are. We're here now nearly a year into the PhD. Has, uh, how is, are the stress levels with the PhD? Non-existent? Stress levels are fine. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I came straight into a project that was ready to go. So I came straight into you know, a a controlled trial that we were doing, a lab-based kind of circadian desynchronization study. And I I just, I kind of think I just don't know any different at this point (laughs) because I started in January and we started the first phase of that trial at the end of January. So it's fine. I think like any of these things, and I think because I was, I got used to balancing nutrition with law when I was still working full-time as, as a barrister. You know, I think stress comes from bad time management, generally, in my experience. And I... That's a, <laughs> yeah. that's a great point. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stress, stress comes when, you know, shit comes up and surprises you, but it's just like, have a game plan and generally you'll get you stress, but not distress. And I think there's an important distinction between those types of stress. Because some very stress much, is... Yeah, and so there's nothing wrong with that little bit of stress that kind of wakes you up slightly earlier in the morning and gets you going to get shit done. Absolutely. Um, so I, just before we kind of get into what we want to talk about or kind of what the, mm-hmm. t- the conversation is going to go into today, um, I kind of wanted to get a bit of an idea as to where your um, your original desire to learn more about nutrition came from. Mm. Um, I think I always had, I, I had an interest in the subject. Um, I was always very kind of deeply active in sport. Um, I thought maybe paying attention to nutrition would make me better. It never did. Um, which is why game changers is hilarious. <laughs> I'm fully aware that new- <laughs> improving your diet will not move, improve your sports specific capacity in any way. Um, no, but I was, I was kind of, I, I, I don't know. I think that was probably the genesis for it. I don't really know how I found myself in PubMed. Um, I think maybe with with the legal background, I gravitated to facts and trying to establish facts. Um, I certainly had from from doing history and certainly from doing law kind of acquired those basic skills of understanding to go towards research databases and those kind of things. So the, the, the idea of, of doing research in a completely different context is still the same. You know, you still need to find your resources, go to some databases. So, it, so I think for maybe a combination of those reasons, I found myself, you know, in PubMed reading papers and I think I fell in love with the shades of gray and the nuances. I think that's what always drew me to nutrition is whenever you thought you'd uncovered a layer of something, there was some additional add-on and some additional little door opening that you had to go down to fully understand what it was that you were looking at in the first place. And I think it's very much as a subject, it's, it's an onion, right? And you just peel back a layer and there's another one there. Um, and I think that's I think that's why I fell in love with it. You, you said something particularly important there, the uh, kind of being in love with the, the shades of grey um, mm. in nutrition. Um, because, I, I, like personally, I, I think nutrition is nothing but shades of grey. Um, yeah. Yet everybody wants to either understand it as or uh, explain it as being perfectly black and white, which. Mm-hmm. Um, is probably something that's causing a lot of issues in in the world of kind of nutrition education at the moment. Yeah, I think so. I think I think there's a desire. I think people generally do want black and white in whatever it is that they're looking at. They want answers. And they want to be able to know definitively that what they're doing is you know right or or is the right way to go. Um, and I think part of the problem with nutrition is that you various levels at which it's communicated at. So if we're talking about population-wide public health type nutrition measures and recommendations, those kind of recommendations are going to seem like they're a bit black and white because they have to be as general as possible to make it applicable and accessible to 97% of the population, even if there are shades of gray there. Um, so, and then we get into 
I suppose, the more individual level. And, and that's where, you know, there is never a one size fits all. And so people that work in clinical practice privately or, you know, in, in, in kind of, you know, public health clinical practice, you know, they're, they're never going to be tied to those general recommendations because they have the expertise and the ability to be more specific. Um, but I think that, I think that the big problem now with the black and white isn't necessarily within the practice of nutrition. I think it's more in the wider populism that's developed. The fact that we've had this explosion of interest in nutrition as a subject amongst the lay public, that's probably unparalleled. I can't think of a health science that has made its way into the popular consciousness um, with such a fervor as nutrition has. And that then gives us, because we're dealing with ordinary people who don't necessarily have scientific backgrounds, don't necessarily have any sort of critical thinking background, we have deep-seatedly bad ideas take hold um, and they're very difficult to uh, disabuse people of those ideas once once they're established as a belief within within their framework of beliefs that they're that they're kind of constructing for themselves you, you um I, I remember over the weekend you did, you did one of your stories and you said something um that I, I just kind of popped into my mind right now um and it has to do with kind of all of this confusion that's that's going around. Obviously, there's a huge amount of information that is being put out that is probably not put out in the correct way or is, mm. you know, downright, downright wrong. Um, yeah. And there are people who are promoting that information as well. And the only thing that we have to stand against it, and, and you, you put this into, into really, um, really good words over the weekend. You said somewhere in the in the in all this mess, a candle flickers, and that candle, it, it, it would have been the perfect start uh, to a superhero movie. Um, I, love, I love some indulgent rhetoric, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was good. Um, it, it was good. and But it's, it's absolutely true as well, because yeah. at the end of the day, we're, and this is something that I really, really want to talk to you about today, is because we're going to get into the difference between science and the difference between opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, and science and opinion are two very, very different things. And the only thing that we have that is giving us the best approximation of truth that mm -hmm. we can get is science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think what's missing right now in, and I, I had an interesting conversation with one of, not a nutrition professor, but a chronobiology professor at Surrey. And we were talking about this idea of science communication. Um, you know, and this guy is incredibly well respected in that field, quite senior. And he was just like, it's absolutely pointless. It is pointless. And, you know, he said, science to me is about the difference between 1.3 and 1.4. And, and the fact that that matters, right? There's 1.3 and 1.4 has no significance. It was just illustrating a point. And my response was, okay, but is the difference between 1.3 and 1.4 important? He said, yes. And I said, is it important for people in their daily lives, even if they don't know it? Well, hypothetically, we'll say yes. So if that difference matters, then it's incumbent on us within science 
to be able to explain it to people outside of science as to why it matters, even if it seems minuscule. And I think that right now the problem with trying to do that is that most people within kind of the science communication realm and certainly within nutrition science, irrespective of what their background is, dietetics, nutrition or otherwise, don't actually understand that more epistemological level of what science is, what its purpose is, how we inform evidence, what we, you know, we just assume that randomized controlled trials were, you know, like farted out of some model in the 70s that they decided, oh, this is the EBM model, so there we'll go with this now, and this trial exists. It's like, no. Like, these, all of how we go about doing research is carefully thought about based on presuppositions and preconditions. So everything we do now is just simply one approach to acquiring knowledge. And I think the big missing link right now is the fact that we don't actually have people really able to explain to the general public what this whole science thing really is and why it kind of matters. Instead, we're just saying, this trial showed this. And it's like, yeah, but unless we can actually explain what the purpose of, of even doing that trial was in the first place, for example, unless we can explain where this fits in the whole picture, I, I don't know that we're going to make any inroads by just telling people that a, a, a feckin' p-value of 0.001 meant something. Um, I think this maybe is a bit higher level now at this point. And I think we need to do a better job of explaining to people what the purpose of science is and, and how, we, how we use it to get to, as you said, that approximate truth um, and, and, and not weaponize science in the process and kind of just browbeat people with, well, these are the findings because no one will listen then. And I think that's why there's a lot of resistance to veganism, for example, because people feel browbeaten by this movement for their choices in their life. I think, like, uh, you know, obviously we, we need to get science across to people better. I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to say that where it's more important to make people better able to, you know, critically think about science. It depends on who we're talking about. Um, yeah. the, the average Joe on the street who is trying to lose, you know, 10 kilos and get their cholesterol levels down and, you know, not die in the next mm -hmm. five years probably doesn't give a damn about critically thinking and just wants to know, no. just tell me what to eat and I'll do it, maybe. Yeah. Um, but then it comes to who are, we, who are we talking about here? And at the moment in, let's say, the, the world of nutrition, uh, at least on, on, on the internet anyway, there's been a huge explosion in, um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing you know, my air quotes here, in evidence-based nutrition and evidence-based practice. And, and I've mentioned this to you before, um, yeah. and I, I've said that I genuinely don't feel comfortable using that term no. anymore. I, and I, I, I use the term science-based. There you go. What do you think has become of the term evidence-based at the moment? Yeah, and, and this, this honestly really relates to, to, to exactly what I was just saying in terms of you know, people citing evidence, this study showed this, but they don't even know what evidence is in the first place. 
And that's a massive problem that I see. And I think you're completely right. It's all over nutrition right now. Um, you know, everyone that ever did whatever their basic nutrition course was takes to the internet and says, you know, I'm evidence-based. This study found this. This study was an RCT. Therefore, it shows why. And I have come to have a rather dim view of the concept of evidence-based certainty in the internet space because I think that people um, don't understand what evidence is in the first place. I think that people, in, in their lack of understanding what evidence is, their concept of being evidence-based is relying solely on the hierarchy of evidence um, as, as a standard of proof. So if a study's an RCT, they just don't question it. The findings are the findings because it's an RCT. If it's a meta-analysis, wow, even better. It must be right, independent of any considerations. And if it's an observational or a prospective cohort study, then it's just obviously shit because it was observational and correlation doesn't equal causation. As if saying correlation doesn't equal causation amounts in itself to critically thinking about the study, which of course it doesn't. It's just a tagline. Um, so I think that right now, part of this issue is everyone has science, right? Irrespective of what belief system they have fallen into. And I include evidence-based as a belief system now. I mean, it's very easy. We can give out about keto. We can give out about veganism. We can give out about any of these types of dietary belief systems. But there's this whole, you know, kind of cult of the evidence-based and um, people assuming that they are evidence-based, but they don't have the understanding of the wider field they can't contextualize what they're talking about, which is, a, for me, a big, big sign of when someone doesn't really get it. So they're able to say this study showed X, but they've completely taken it out of the wider context of the literature around that topic. And I think the evidence-based thing has become its own camp. And I don't really have much regard for a lot of the quality behind the thinking and the content of people who purport to be evidence-based. So that is a bit dim. But <laughs> Yeah, th things aren't looking good. Um, I, I, I think, you know, just because you've mentioned it already um, uh, earlier on, if we think in, in the context of evidence-based in the way that you've just explained it, um, the movie, and I don't want to dwell on, on, on this documentary itself, but The Game Genders can most certainly call itself an evidence-based documentary um, because of whatever references that it managed to put right. into, in, right. into news. And a lot of those were taken out of, again, the context of the, the greater body of knowledge that we have, the greater body of, of evidence that we have. Um, and we ended up with what The Game Genders was. And, and the reason that I'm mentioning this is because I know, so you spoke uh, again over the weekend, not about the movie itself, but about, let's say, some of the emotions that uh, it might have um, uh, caused. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, and I, I will say, so, uh, Alan, you, you write, you know, fantastically, and, and it's, it's very difficult to say that about somebody who writes in the short form that is uh, an Instagram story. Um, but uh, what you wrote was very, very emotive, and it, it you did clearly, you showed that you were very, very upset about what was happening and what was being caused yeah. or, or what was arising from 
uh, what you saw within the game changers. And one of those was a disappointment in certain researchers that put their name mm-hmm. to the rule, um, which again, claims to be evidence-based, um, but wasn't necessarily science-based in, in your definition. Yeah, exactly. And that, that was for me the most, I, I mean, and it was, it was, it was just so, it was so, you know, that whole, like your mom, like, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. Like that was where I got to when I saw Walter Willett in particular. And, and, you know, David Katz was funny because I followed his writing for years. And as someone who I love to write and I've always loved Katz's writing, even if I don't agree with everything he says, um, I, 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 I really enjoyed his writing and he would challenge my perspectives and, I had, he spoke at the Australian Lifestyle Medicine Conference a week or two ago and a good friend of mine was there and I had I had a chat with him and apparently Katz was talking about like leadership and his concept of leadership and how it's taken him, you know, to, to how he's had to fight all these fights to get where he's going. And I'm like, you know, surely if you've put this much hard yards into trying to get measured dialogue going in the discourse and you are fighting all of these fights internally you're you're working to get you know acknowledgement that diet and improvements uh, needs upstream political agitation it needs interventions with industry he's always been a big person pushing for like we need to tackle the source here to go on a documentary irrespective could have been a keto documentary could have been a documentary about fruitarianism to go on that medium, which is so unabashedly biased towards one agenda, one worldview, one perspective, you completely invalidate the good and the sense and the science in anything else you say, because you now can't be considered in any way independent and objective about the views you're espousing. And for Walter Willett to do it, I mean, I know that he had endorsed Eat Lancet. I know that he had been a part of that wider research group. I have my issues with that, not in the sense that they were, say, wrong about the contributions of, you know, um, concentrated animal livestock feeding to the environment and and carbon emissions, more so because of the, the really moralistic and classist overtones in the document that basically say, hey, if you adopt this diet that we've all done, not only can you save your health, but you can save the planets too. Uh, And I don't like that level of of moralism that they put into it. And I feel like Game Changers has taken a slightly different tact, um, but it still has that element of, hey, we're all here the science people are in the documentary because we've decided that this is actually a superior way to be. Um, and where do we go from there in the conversation? Like, who do we now have in the field? A Walter Willett, who is the godfather of modern nutrition science. Who, who the fuck else do we have now that we can say this person has integrity with their message, has a desire to unify these polarizing, you know, kind of dialogues and camps uh, and can try and work to bring nutrition to a place where we actually start having 
some reasoned discourse about the evidence that we do have, because we have more than enough evidence to start improving health at the population and individual level, but we're never going to action that evidence when the leaders in the field abandon any perception of integrity and objectivity that they have. And I just think it leaves us in a really, really just disappointing position as a field. How, how do you think people can maintain that objectivity? Because obviously it's very, very easy for people to switch to one side or be part of one side or just, because when you are, when you go to one side of the argument, you're obviously surrounded by like-minded people who will support everything you say, regardless of what you're saying, because you're on their side and you are confirming their, their bias. And I think, like, obviously, uh, you know, I try as much as possible to be objective. Being completely objective in anything is, is not... It's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, if, if we go back to, say, David Katz as an example... I've known for the six or odd years that I've been following his writing. He does most of his essays that he publishes on LinkedIn, bizarrely. Uh, he, David Katz is the only reason I've ever gone on to LinkedIn. <laughs> like, I don't use it. Um, but I, I, know, I know that he is, you know, very much plant-based. Um, I know that he has been very much anti the meat industry, but in his writings, I always found a grain of moderation that even though he was clearly of this persuasion, he was ultimately being like, hey, there's a common ground here. There's probably more between healthful diets than divides them. So, yeah, we can get hung up on one or two foods or food groups. But ultimately, if we're all down this line of eating these foods, we're probably going to be okay so notwithstanding that he had that allegiance, he seems to me to be able to be a thinker who was able to transcend his allegiance to give a message that was measured, sensible, and accessible to anyone from whatever side of the, the house you were on, so to speak. Um, and I would have maintained that impression of him, but for him going on that documentary. Um, so I, I don't think everyone, 100% of objectivity is impossible. What it's about is, and, and it's completely fine to have a, a way that you do things personally or the diet you consume, fine. But it's when the circles that you hang in, so to speak, and the people and the, and the places in the public forum that you put yourself into, when they become the kinds of places that then hang a question mark over your head, then you've lost that benefit of the doubt. And that was the point I was trying to make in my stories over the weekend. For someone like Katz, I absolutely knew that he was a, a plant-based advocate. That was his diet. This is his approach. So when I read his criticisms of the ketogenic diet and their, and their ketogenic paradigm, I take that with a pinch of salt but he's also really right about them as well. And I think anyone, anyone objective would see that. But for me, it's that ability to have the benefit of the doubt attached to that person, whoever they are, because you are able to see, yes, they have this general allegiance, but in their communication and in the manner in which they do it and the medium through which they do it, they seem to transcend that to come and communicate 
sense um, and, and to stay grounded in the science as opposed to evidence. <laughs> We're speaking very, very much kind of a, almost in the public realm when it comes to kind of getting these images across to people. Like, um, obviously, you know, uh, Game Changers is very, very much a public documentary that people are, everybody's going to see. Mm. But the same thing, to a certain extent, and again, I, I, I'm not going to paint everybody with the same brush here. The same thing does happen within academia, and it, it, it shouldn't in that you will have people who you can almost, you almost know when somebody has published a paper, okay, X researcher has published a paper, and it's on a certain topic, and you're like, oh, well, this is going to show this. Because, right. and it, it's, that's a little bit worrying as well, because you see something like that creeping into into science, which is what you know we're, we're saying is our you know yeah. our, our our goals and lives in in the darkness of all this. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a statistician at Stanford who just despises nutrition science um, called Professor John Unitas, and I, I disagree pretty much with everything he says about nutrition as a science. Um, but he has made the point in the past that he thinks that researchers at the end of papers where you have to disclose conflicts of interests or anything like that, that researchers in nutrition science should have to disclose their dietary <laughs> allegiances. Um, uh, I've, I've, I've brought this up with numerous people over the last year because he said, he said it a while ago um, and you get a lot of resistance to it. You get people who are objective or like, that's absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, and, and ultimately people who probably are biased would simply just say, well, I have none, you know, because they can't see their own bias, which is why they're biased. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I don't think that would ever happen. But it, it, well, it, it, has, it has already happened. If you think about that, um, that paper that was released um, about the, that basically said that we don't need to change our, our habits when it comes to red meat and processed meat. They did actually show the red meat intake of each Reviewer on the reviewer, right? I, I, I was very surprised to see it. it was the first time I've ever seen that in a paper. Yeah. Um, one, once a week, three times a week, seven times a week, etc. One one thing I like about um, Kevin Hall, uh, one I think he's a scientist of of the utmost integrity, but in his recent paper they published on they they reanalyzed data from a study that showed a. 400 calorie advantage to a low carb diet during weight loss maintenance. Cara Ebeling was the lead author. She is a dyed in the wool low carber. David Ludwig was, it was his research group. He is a dyed in the wool low carber. You know, so you're seeing this paper come out and you're seeing that they basically fiddled with their methodology until they got the results they want. Like, that's not okay. That's not integrity in research. But Kevin Hall in the disclosures at the end said that he's had multiple public debates about the carb insulin model. And I'm like, God, these Cara Ebeling and David Ludwig can't even put that they, they, they believe this diet is superior. Kevin Hall has so much integrity. He puts in that he's had debates with the guy about the carb insulin model. Um, there's another researcher called Hannah Kaleva, who is Czech originally, but is now in the States in that um, Institute for Preventative Medicine or whatever. that, um, And all of her papers are on whole food plant-based or vegan diets. And they all show positive responses. But then you look at the comparative diets 
And like she hasn't matched fiber or saturated fat or these variables that are, of course, going to make a vegan diet look superior to the crap control diet that you've given people. So, ugh. <laughs> it's it's so disheartening. <laughs> it's it's so disheartening. I think I think the candle in the dark has to be be those of us that are committed to science is the candle, and we need to be the ones that are trying to keep that candle lit, and we need to be the ones fanning that flame so that it keeps burning. Um, and the only way that I think we can do that is if we continue to demonstrate to people um, what integrity in doing, reading, and interpreting research actually means. And and for me, that means, you know, we have to be, you know, we have to be on our game. If we're going to be in this broad area of, of science communication, you know, we, we have to stay committed to that kind of very lofty concept but it is bigger than ourselves um and i don't know i go through pockets sometimes over the last year i've kind of got the sense that maybe it's turning a little bit um maybe more people are just fed up of confusion fed up of of feeling like you know they're getting lied to basically or or people are plugging an agenda um one thing where I thought this became obvious to me this year was within the medical ranks. I felt a real big kickback, positive kickback this year against the clowns in that movement that have kind of for the last kind of year and a half, maybe two years, very much been impeachable characters. Um, and I felt a lot of frustration coming back, which I thought was really good that people were just kind of sick of a couple of Egypts making the rest of them look <laughs> like, like, like um, you know, pseudo-scientific. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, I think sometimes I get the impression that there's something positive turning, but at the, at the really populist level, it's, it's hard to see how that would spread and, Surely maybe that's just my own echo chamber on social media who I know that the, the people that, you know, I'm engaged with on social media are often nutrition professionals themselves or student dietitians or medical professionals. So I, I may be preaching to a choir that doesn't need converting. Um, I, I know you were, you were kind of speaking about the, uh, the British Society for Lifestyle, Lifestyle Medicine there. Um, and, when I when that organization started and I got involved, I was very like I, I think I'm 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 very very almost disgustingly positive. Um, right. <laughs> although that that positivity we're, does we're, we're polar opposites. <laughs> I, that that positivity gets sapped out of me a little bit more um, every time I read something crappy on on uh, Instagram or Facebook. But right. um, so I thought there was a huge amount of potential for that. Um, for that group because it was finally like putting lifestyle, especially nutrition and exercise into a position where people could say, look, Hey, this is something that we can prescribe to, uh, to patients that they can start doing themselves that can have a significant benefit on their health. And it was, it was finally a chance for nutrition to get a little bit of a say within, the, let's say the, the a more holistic view of, of improving people's health. I thought that was fantastic. 
when I actually got involved in the group and I started, I, and, and you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but if, if, when I started seeing some of the discussions and debates that were going on between factions of people, factions of, let's say, these are all GPs, these are doctors who have one goal and their goal is to make people healthier. And right. you've got people arguing over, okay, they can improve. <laughs> yeah, like this needs to be a completely keto diet. We need to be focusing on high nutrient density animal products or we need to be focus, focusing on high nutrient density, completely plant products. And right, right. Or it was literally st- stupid. Yeah, it's, it's insane. It's insane. And I think I, I, had, I had a similar enthusiasm a year or so ago when I came into it. Um, and, then I, and then I just didn't bother renewing my membership because it was so clearly going down this just awful path of woo and nonsense. I'm hoping that I might be able to help along with some other people shape a, a, a new kind of path that the BSLM can go down where it's committed to evidence-based nutrition. I've recommended that they apply to join the new Academy of Nutritional Sciences, which would bring them right into the framework of evidence-based nutrition in the UK, hoping to put together an actual nutrition committee uh, of academics that can actually inform the conversation, you know, recommend speakers, veto speakers, um, and, and, and hopefully have a committee. And I was really, really clear about being like, this isn't a committee of fucking GPs with their interest in nutrition. Like this is actually people from the field, legitimate academics, researchers, and people who can clarify a lot of this nonsense that's going on. Um, I think they'll ultimately, if this happens, there'll be a massive exodus from the BSLM because the belief systems won't be able to take the fact that their belief hasn't won the day uh, and there is now a commitment to evidence-based nutrition. Um, but, but, but the thing that I'm most frightened about is the email chains that I've seen over the last year between these fractions of like keto docs and low-carb docs. And I, I, I have to sit back from, from the keyboard and, and tell myself these are not just grown adults, but grown adults with nominally medical degrees. And again, nominally on paper, you would think from that educational experience, some capacity to think critically about healthcare information. Um, I, I notice not, I don't, this is not coincidental that most of the nonsense within medicine about nutrition comes from GP land. I think there are multiple reasons for that. Um, and one is fundamentally, you know, in how busy general practice is once people get into it, you know, there's no, they don't have to publish, uh, which isn't a bad thing, but it's just, it's one limitation in terms of turning around and then assuming, well, I did a medical degree 20 years ago. I can, I can start reading this nutrition science stuff and figure it all out. Um, and so what happens is, in terms of where they get their information from, it's really no different from anyone in the lay public. Like they're reading blogs and books and whatever that that accords with their preconceived worldview. So they end up with belief systems formed about diet that is the same as any, you know, kind of person in the general public. Um, and and that's that's been part. But I I do think I'm really really optimistic that 
actually that ship will turn and sail a new direction this coming year. And I think it will be a direction very, there's, there's far too many people in the BSLM that realize what nonsense has gone on and are not happy for that continued direction, but also realize that rather than just strike out and form a new group, you know, it's much easier and probably better in the long term to just try and reform what's there right now from within. Absolutely. Um, so hopefully that will get one part of the difficulty in the nutrition conversation moving in the right direction, which is nutrition in medicine. And I think that's been hugely a big part of all of this um, populism in, in nutrition. I, th I think, I think, I, I, I know I'm often very critical of medical doctors with their approach to nutrition, but, um, you know, I think this criticism is valid. Um, I think it's warranted to be open and frank about that criticism because as healthcare professionals, as medical professionals, public facing ones, there is a higher standard and duty of care um, on, on people in that place um, not to be beholden to beliefs and to do the right thing for, for people in the public. Um, and so for me, I think, I, think, I think it's been a huge aggravating factor in the populism in nutrition, <laughs> Mike. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the GP in the group trolling us, <laughs> um, but I, th I think it has been a huge part of the problem in the in in the populist discourse because if you have people in the public screaming at each other, one half of them putting butter in their coffee, uh, and the other half of them just drowning themselves in chickpeas, you know, when you've got that same food fight going on in medicine it's really hard to separate that, the nonsense from the public sphere. So if we can end that sooner, then I think we're off to not a bad start for trying to right this ship in 2020. And at least that'll be one win of many that will, <laughs> one battle in, in, a, in, a, in a large war of trying to reestablish science and nutrition. Yeah, because and you, I know you've said this yourself. We are spending far too much time arguing over which side is right and which side is wrong, when we should be spending much more time on just getting some sort of concrete message across to people when it comes to nutrition. Instead of instead of people wondering, oh, what's this side say? Oh, what's this side say? I don't know what side I should join. It should be right. more like, what should you do? Right. Exactly. And and we have more than enough evidence for action with, and, and, and I did a, I did a, a, a podcast episode with, with Josh on our, the cut through nutrition podcast, where we actually wanted to do this. And we basically were like, let's actually talk about what a healthy diet is. Now, putting aside all the socioeconomic, all the other variables that influence why this isn't easy at the basic level, after 70 to 100 years of nutrition science, we can pretty confidently say, for example, that high level of unsaturated fat intake is good for you. It's good for your brain, it's good for your heart. That in particular, polyunsaturated fat intake is very good for your brain and good for your heart, long chain omega-3s. We can say that a high polyunsaturated to saturated fat ratio is good. So high polyunsaturated, low saturated fat, we can say that. 
we can say that's good for heart disease risk reduction. We can say it's good for neurodegenerative disease risk reduction. We can say it's good for diabetes disease risk reduction. We can say that a high dietary fiber intake is unequivocally good for health, for modulating the microbiome, whatever we know about that at this point, I still think we're scratching the surface. But for direct like cholesterol lowering benefits, for direct benefits to glycemic control, for diabetes, um, a whole host of direct physiological benefits to consuming dietary fiber. You know, we can probably say that consuming fruits and vegetables is incontrovertible <laughs> as a fact that is beneficial. You know, we have more than enough evidence in there. And, and this myopic emphasis on the minutiae within that, like will having a bit of Greek yogurt or eggs kill you by virtue of their animal origin. You know, this farcical level of myopic reductionism that makes no sense in the context of wider diet patterns. Um, you know, this, this idea of, you know, meat in the diet. And I'm just like, okay, well, let, let's, look, let's look at the Epic Oxford cohort, for example, which generally has been one of the studies cited to show certainly no difference in colorectal cancer rates, but very little overall difference in mortality between meat eaters and vegetarians. One thing is the vegetarians in that cohort study consumed eggs and dairy. Two, meat consumption on average was about 79 grams a day in men and 68 in women. Like that's basically saying that meat consumption in that sociodemographic is not particularly high in the first place. And here we are trying to admonish everyone on the assumption that a meat-based diet means people are eating 400 grams of Big Macs every day. So, you know, there's just this farcical lack of nuance in the conversation about these things. Where actually, if we step back up from this and look at the big picture, all of these cornerstone principles of a healthy diet pattern higher saturated, unsaturated fat, lower saturated fat, high fiber intake, plenty of fruits and vegetables, adequate protein, you can get all of those variables with no animal produce, some animal produce, some eggs, no dairy, some dairy, no eggs, some dairy, eggs, some fucking meat. Like the diet pattern is what's important and we're just... We're, we're, we're not able to get to the simplicity of that truth because of the amount of bullshit that we've got going on. But as much as you say that there's all of this scientific evidence backing every single statement that you've said there, if it doesn't align with somebody's views, if it doesn't align with somebody's beliefs, and I use that word explicitly, beliefs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what you're saying, doesn't you're matter. wrong. Exactly, exactly. Science is not, I, I, if, it, and this is the thing, I'm then the one who's biased, you know, you know, I, I'm the one then that has to check my biases and, 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 uh, and, and educate myself. I love that with the, with the, the real crazy woke crowd, you know, it's like, educate yourself. It's just like, I've been spending every year since I left school, basically in further education and some description. Don't fucking come at me after your Netflix documentary and tell me to educate myself. Uh, so it's, it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating. And like the, 
you know, I saw Lane Norton did a funny post about the, the <laughs> game changers he's watched already. And, you know, Garth Davis comes in underneath trying to make a point about the gladiators thing. And I was like, hold on a minute. This is farcical. You're arguing over evidence for what they ate and how they performed. Like, this is just ridiculous. And I made that point. I was just like, one, we have no idea how their diet translated in terms of performance. You know, like, <laughs> how, did it, how did it aid the sword wielding? Two, the reason they were fed a grain-based diet was because grain subsidies were brought into Rome by... I'm going to kick myself for not remembering the emperor. But... Um, but basically, it allowed them a really calorically dense diet that could fatten them up for cheap. That's it. That's why. That's why. And here's 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 Garth Davis trying to argue with Lane Norton over the evidence for what gladiators consumed. Like, I, I literally like w watching that movie and the fact that that was literally their first introduction to nutrition right. in the documentary. I. God, most people, you know, I, I watched for a reason because I wanted to, to see what was going on there. But yeah, most people, you know, with any bit of critical thinking, you should say, right, I'm going to put on an episode of Friends or something like that. Right. Right. I mean, and, and, and that's the thing. And most people, this is why documentaries are made. You know, this is why they're a medium that is powerful and compelling for most people in the general public you weave and now we are human beings right we don't like facts we like narratives stories we're an evolutionary species of apes that sat around campfires telling stories for hundreds of years so we we love a story you know um and that is always going to be way more compelling when you dress it up with facts so-called facts, when you pull on your experts to confirm everything that people are going to want to hear anyway, and certainly the makers of the documentary want to hear anyway, then you have a really compelling narrative on your hands that reeks of science, but really doesn't have any of the integrity of what science is about. It's an abuse of science. Yeah, and especially when you add into uh, into that, you know, a uh, conversation about how men can improve their erections, you've got a winning formula there, right? Right, and that, it's just so, so ludicrous. And I think when you look back at Cowspiracy and those documentaries, right, that, that was really the vegan kind of, kind of propaganda machine going for fear. Let's scare the shit out of people and get them to bend to our world view. That didn't really work. So they've gone with male insecurity now. And like, let's play on male performance in the bedroom and in the weight room and, and in the field. And it's such a toxic masculinity approach to trying to get this across. Of course, of course, Garth Davis and these other twats are just saying, well, no, we were just balancing the playing field because vegans are, are perceived as weak and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's what this was about, was balancing the playing fields. Like, it's the most incredulous justification for what that documentary ultimately is, that they think they're just balancing the playing field by trying to address a lot of misconceptions about vegan men. It's just like, well, really, if you thought you had to go down that road in the first place, you were never going down a good road. Um, and I, like... We, we could chat about this for a very, very long time. And I, I would love it, but I'm very conscious of your, of your time. Um, I want to leave you with one question. Um, actually, before I ask you this question, 
Um, where can people find a little bit more about you? Where can people follow you? Where can people get, um, you know, do you have anything that you'd like to, to plug or send, any, send people anywhere? Yeah, well, I mean, I think everyone's that's here is probably in some way, shape or form aware now that I am on Instagram. <laughs> so <laughs> follow me here for now. Um, I've been getting abuse off people joking about my website never coming out. Um, it is coming out. I had some awful de technical issues that turned out to be nothing to do with the site, but to do with PayPal. And I spent last week, I cannot even describe the levels of rage that I've been in with PayPal over that. They are fucking appalling. Anyway, I'm not going back down there, but like, God, they're, they're all, they're really, really bad. So anyway, so that's all, that's finally resolved. Um, and I had to resolve it directly with them. And now that it's resolved. So basically, do, did you know you can't have PayPal accounts in separate countries? Like once you have, pay, it's not universal. PayPal UK is completely different to PayPal Ireland. PayPal personal is completely different to PayPal business. So I rang them and I was just like, why isn't this link working through my website? We set it up and they were like, oh, but you changed to a business account in the UK. And I was just like, yeah. And they were like, oh yeah, you're back to the start. You have to set it up all over again. And I was like, and you'd never emailed me to tell me this. Like, Alan, I, I've lived in five different countries in the last 10 years. I've had my fair share of fights with, uh, with PayPal. <laughs> I, I know you're paid. So, so I Googled wire PayPal and like I've reassuringly found whole Reddit forums dedicated to just ripping PayPal apart. So I feel less aggrieved by by this whole process but anyway that that is resolved as of last week and we're going to get that live hopefully at the end of this week so just keep stay tuned on my stories and people will know when it's live and that's going to be alinea.com is that right alineanutrition.com yeah Alinea, excuse my uh, my terrible pronunciation um, I, I, I would be the one that goes with a random grammatical topographical symbol for my for my website um so that yeah so everybody that is going to be coming uh out very very soon um yeah. and you can get a lot of great insights from alan uh listening to that my one last question that i want to ask you alan is is this and and you know we can keep it kind of short and sweet but in all of this conversation about nutrition and nutrition education and getting the right message across to people is there hope uh, no, uh, no. You, you see, this is the thing. You said you're internally positive. I, I just view sapiens in a, in a rather dim light, ultimately. <laughs> I think there's hope for people like us and people who are listening to us. There's hope for a really small section of humanity, but there's not hope for the vast majority of sapiens on the planet. Um, unfortunately, we need a big cull. We need a big call. <laughs> <laughs> am I, it, should am I like... IQ, it should be IQ based. Oh God! You should have a critical thinking exam. <laughs> oh, this got dark really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and then off, off to the trains. No. Um... <laughs> Fail. <laughs> Right, yeah. I, I'm going. I'm going to hope that my little bit of remaining positivity is enough to kind of balance out that uh, that little level of um, darkness that we just encountered. 
But remember, everybody who's who's listening to this, you're safe. Hopefully, yes. Um, <laughs> we're we're gonna build an ark, and you're welcome on the ark, everyone. Right. Uh, just in case uh, Alan's ever running for election, be careful voting for him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Alan, I'm too honest for my own good. <laughs> Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you it's so been much great, dude. for uh, talking to us. Um, I've loved yeah. this. Uh, we'll have to get you on again sometime soon. Um, everybody else, you know, Alan's the man. Um, I've been waiting to have him on here for a long time. So delighted that we could have this conversation. And um, yeah, we'll uh, yeah. be looking forward to see what's coming from you soon in the future. Okay, thanks a lot, Alan. You too, dude. Take care. Thank thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. Um, if you did, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps spread word of the podcast to new listeners. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at be underscore more underscore nutrition. I'd also love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please feel free to comment on the podcast post or send me a message directly on Instagram. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.